Welcome to PSA Today. It is April 1st, 2020. PSA Today stands for Privacy, uh, Surveillance, and Anonymity. And um, I'm here with Kalia. Kalia, Hi, Seth. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, where are you today? I'm in Oakland, California, in my house. I'm in Mill Valley, in my house. Yeah, we're all in our houses. Yes, we are. This is the in the, this is this will go down as the in all of our house time. Yes. Alone, alone, but together. Alone, but together, and and there's a whole set of technology things happening online that's sort of raising questions about privacy, surveillance, and anonymity. Um, so it's a good time to start this podcast. It's a good time to start new, fresh things. Um, a lot of uh, the world is changing and technology is evolving faster than, uh, culturally faster than we ever anticipated right now. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. the, core, the core technology itself um, may not be moving quite as fast, but I think the way we're using it is. Mm -hmm. So let's, um, why don't we start by introducing the, the story of kind of what brought us together to do this from the first place. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've been working on um, the issues around user-centric digital identity for over 15 years. And we actually met many, many years ago, over a decade. We're not even sure when. Um, and at the time, you were working on attention trust, right? Yeah, that was 2005. Yeah. In New York, oh, in wow. New York City. Yeah really long time ago that was right at the beginning of starting the internet identity workshop for me and when were the first web 2.0 conferences right a, a little bit before then around that time yeah they were around that time yeah so i think this traces back to the beginning of web 2.0 and you know some of the stuff that tim o'reilly was working on um and we may have met in the context of one of those conferences yeah so let's take that as the origin point um, we branched off and did different things. Um, do you want to yeah. talk about some of your more recent work? Yeah. So I've been, um, um, working on, on user-centric identity and I actually went to school and got a master's degree and have a book coming out from that work called the domains of identity. And I also wrote a book about the emerging self-sovereign identity or decentralized identity technology called a comprehensive guide to self-sovereign identity. So, it, it's in the last several years, we've had some pretty big breakthroughs in terms of the potential to support people owning and controlling their digital representations of themselves and their data. And you've um, gotten back in the privacy game with a new startup, right? I have indeed. It's called Spartacus. Spartacus.net uh, for anybody that wants to check it out on the web. We launched quietly last month with a paid service to help people protect their privacy and prevent identity theft. Cool. And, and how, do you, how do you guys do that? We start by giving people a free risk score. So you type in your email address and we will tell you how at risk you are for having your identity stolen based on how much information is available about you, uh, particularly in the form of data brokers databases. So we search the 
public internet and whatever private databases we can to see how many pieces of your identity, you know, correct or uncorrect or true or false in terms of the quality of the data are out there. Um, how much of a trace you've left behind, how easy it would be for people to pretend to be you. And then we give you a score. And then if you want, you can pay us. If you have a really bad score, we, you can pay us $9.99 a month to systematically delete your data from data brokers. Very cool. It's sort of, and it's sort of privacy plumbing for individuals. Excellent. And, and so are, so people can go and sign up now. People can sign up now as a free cancel anytime trial. And um, we're trying to actually take a stand and help people claim back their privacy and, and gain some agency over a situation that was tenuous before the pandemic and is going to be even more tenuous um, as things get, you know, quote unquote, back to normal, because a lot of governments and, and companies that are uh, going to be enabled um, and entitled by these governments are going to overreach and try to see more and more of what we do and who we are without our consent or control. Right. Yeah. And we're so... going to touch on that later, This hopefully in a later in this podcast, we can kind of circle back to what's happening vis-a-vis -vis privacy in the pandemic. Yes, that's a big theme that I imagine we'll keep covering for quite a while. Indeed. So I think what brought us together is the, and we've talked about this for a few months now, is uh, the idea of let's every week at the, at the least um, talk about these key issues privacy, surveillance, anonymity, as it relates to identity and who we are as people. Yeah. And there's so much news out there every day now, uh, not to mention interesting people and companies uh, uh, and academics and governments uh, attacking this and, and trying to apply this in different ways. And, and that's the subject of our conversation. Yeah. So one of the big topics this week has been Zoom. Yes. I've been buying Zoom uh, calls because I like the stock, but at the same time, I, mean, I think what I'm, what I'm imagining um, as Zoom becomes more and more of a platform for everyday use, it's going to be stretched into um, areas of the economy and society and culture that I don't think Zoom was quite prepared for. Mm -hmm. We're seeing yeah. that sort of stretch. I mean, maybe you can fill listeners in. What is the news about Zoom as it relates to privacy? What should we be concerned yeah, about? Yeah, so, yeah, there is, well, there's a few things. One is the calls themselves are, um, have pretty minimal security. So a new phenomena has emerged called Zoom bombing. And in fact, in the hour before we recorded this, a call that I was, a community call for Radical Exchange was Zoom bombed at the beginning. So the whole call was canceled because someone had, come into the room taken over the screen and was like doing weird stuff and no one could talk so that's that's one thing that's going on with zoom and then is there's that the been new a whole... rick rolling yeah it's the new rick rolling and then there's been a whole range of um because the increase in the use of zoom went up so much a lot of security researchers started looking at it and so concerns emerged around um some uh, uh, tracking 
within Zoom that was sending information over to Facebook. Apparently, they just released a new version that doesn't do that anymore. There is also, um, sorry, um, there is also um, uh, issues around. They were saying that they had end-to-end -end encryption, but people are looking at the actual security and saying like that's not really there. And also um, that the the Zoom leaks people's emails and addresses and photos to strangers. Um, like when you go into a meeting, it asks for your name and your email, and and how those are sort of shared isn't really well designed. So it's leaking information. And what do you attribute these issues to? Just growth? Do you think there's anything nefarious going on in Zoom, or they're just they're just, I mean, they just built what they know, right? So they built a system and it was working fine until the entire world <laughs> went went to work from home. And then a bunch of people started looking at it more closely, right? Um, yeah, I guess but my I think feeling is I'm it, not, it reminds me, I think back, I think it was 19, God, 90, maybe 98 or 99, I remember that, um, I think when AOL went to unlimited internet or something like its servers started to, you know, it's, it's dial up servers started to melt um, and it had severe outages. I don't know what year it was, but you know, at the time it was in retrospect, it was clear. It just couldn't handle demand, even though people were predicting, you know, the downfall of AOL. Yeah. So I think that's to me, at least analogous to what's happening with zoom, which is, they were just minding their own business being a tech, you know, unicorn. And then lo and behold, the yeah. world just moved their way and they're not really ready to handle the strain. And there's a quote from Twitter that someone wrote, people are noticing how invasive Zoom is. The takeaway isn't that Zoom is spyware. It's that spyware tactics are a common feature of enterprise software and surveillance techniques pioneered in call centers and fast food kitchens are spreading to all workers, right? So that's a different take on sort of like the inherent design of tools for work that employers use and the information it's gathering as sort of a normal part of doing business. Yeah, and, and also the, the kind of the obvious elephant in the room, which is in the case of Zoom, we're, we're asking to be watched. We're literally turning mm -hmm. yeah. on the camera and saying, watch me. So there is built-in surveillance. It's self-surveillance um, yeah. in a way that we haven't had with core messaging for a long time. The participatory panopticon. Yeah, indeed. I have, a, I have an original like, edition of Bentham's panopticon here in Mill Valley. Oh, wow. Just a reminder of where we're all heading. When was the Spanish flu? Yeah. That was 1918 we should definitely do some digging and see what we find. Yeah, I have a friend at, uh, my friend Tom Levine at Princeton could probably help us there. I'll have to dig in and, and ask him. He's, a, he's done a lot of history of surveillance technology.
Yeah. So moving. So I think the, the where we are with Zoom is um, it's going to clarify and express all a lot of latent issues um, in terms of video surveillance that we that were bubbling under the surface, but now insofar as we're shifting to work at home on a mass scale, um, are going to get enlarged and amplified. Yep, definitely. Okay, well, we're shifting from Zoom to more broadly, what are the implications for privacy um, in terms of this pandemic? Yeah, so there's a couple different angles and to to look at. So there's um, there's a range of applications that have been um, developed um, both by sort of um, hackers working on on it, and also even governments and the. So one set of things is contact tracing. So how do you know where you've been and who you might have been in contact if you become infected and you need to let the trail of people who you connected with in the last few days know? And this is actually happening at a large scale in Taiwan and Singapore. Um, it's why they're able to sort of reopen their, or they almost never close their economies down and just sort of get on with everyday life because everybody's using an app that supports contact tracing um, if somebody happens to be infected. Is that um, WeChat? No, um, there's one in... Um, um, no, it's not WeChat. It's it's different apps. There's a, like an official app in Singapore that you get, and then there's, um, sorry, yeah. So it's not WeChat. Um, so that that begs the question now. I mean, I, and I I see there's similar things happening in Israel and every other a lot of these other um, strongman states, um, and in the case of Israel. You know, the same technology that was being, you know, has been used in the past to try to track terror suspects is being used across a population to do contact tracing. Right. So there's there. I think there's there's potentially sort of two fork. There's a fork in the road about how you do this. One is hook up with the telcos and sort of push it down from the top. And the other is encourage everybody to download an app and to have people choose to opt in and have have the the tracing happen via people's data and the app, not from the telco and the government seeing everything. And so the the folks in the My Data community have actually organized a, a, a network of folks developing different application and trying to move as, as much as possible towards the human-centric people controlling their own data and doing the right thing by public good and, and, and enabling tracing if it's needed. So there's a lot to unpack here. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are some, some nations that are just doing this unilaterally with or without the consent or the awareness of the people involved. Yes. There are other places and we can kind of fill in these quadrants. There are other places where, um, people are aware of it, even if they're not consenting to do it. Right. So in the right. case of Israel, for example, my sense is people weren't aware, and maybe the states as well, 
people really weren't aware that their data is being traced without their, they weren't aware that their data was being traced. And, and even if, even when they become aware of it, they have no control over it. Right. Um, versus somewhere like Russia or China. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated. I'm just trying to think it through now. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it reminds me of, you know, 9-11 where we, where the Patriot Act emerged and, and we were so willing to give up um, privacy freedoms that in retrospect are very hard to put back in the bottle. Yes, very hard. And and we did other things at that time in the in the aftermath. We implemented something called the Real ID Act. And ironically enough, um, that was supposed to come into force in October 2020. And the the Department of Homeland Security pushed the date out a year because of the pandemic. Wow, that's right. So then, you know, circling back then, what what do we want? You know what I mean? We we want we want to know where our neighbors are coming from, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we want to know if we've um, had a contact with someone at high risk. I think the interesting thing is if you read the information coming out of Singapore, in terms of um, they really only worry about people being at high risk if they spent more than fifteen minutes in front, like speaking to someone without a mask on who became infected. So once you have effective um, um, contact tracing happening at a large scale and an amazing testing, you could go back to normal. Um, and, and ever, you know, they're also doing super strong social distancing throughout their whole society and, and other things, right? So there's ways to get to where they are. We just have to to go through probably another two months of sitting in our houses um, to get the the number of cases down to close to zero, and then implement these strong measures to go back to life as much as we can. Um, I think there's another there's another side to this that's starting to emerge too, which is how if you have been infected and you've gotten to the other side, or even if you were infected and you didn't even know it, right? Because apparently 25% of people are asymptomatic completely, like they don't even know they got it. So those people, if they get once once we have testing capacity and they find out, yes, in fact, they did have coronavirus therefore they're not likely to get it again therefore they could go back to work how do you prove that to people and could you do that in a user-centric way so actually the community that i've been leading in in decentralized identities having several meetings over the next week to see if they can standardize a credential format and 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 see if we could use these wallets where people own and control their own credentials to accept credentials that state that they have had the virus and therefore they can you know go back and engage in everyday life right and so we want to somehow uncouple i mean that, i guess that it's sort of that begs the question of how do we how can we be transparent in terms of our location maybe not let me rephrase this better how can we reveal authentically where we've been and who we've been in contact with while also while also preserving um, 
our privacy, our anonymity, and our identity. Yep. And is and I, I is it, it's a form of diff, I mean I call it differential pandemic privacy. We, <laughs> yeah, let's that's coin a good this, and maybe it. that's the contribution of, of this episode. DPP. So differential pandemic privacy is what I'm imagining is how, is is how do we participate as a um, helpful and productive and and loving global citizen in terms of enabling ourselves to be credentialed and others to credentialize us in terms of where we've been and who we've been in contact with while at the same time feeling private and, and feeling like I, I, I don't have to share everything about myself to everybody. It's tricky because so for the longest time, at least for me, up until this pandemic, the my whereabouts, my, my physical location, you know, in the same way that I can see where my kids are with fine friends, um, that has always felt so core to my identity. But we now need mm-hmm. to give that up in the in the in the cause of the greater good. So how and give how can I give that up but hold on to something else in terms of what is my essential being without feeling that that's being violated? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the apps that was presented this morning um, during the My Data um, COVID-19 data call was called WeTrace that actually is inspired by what Singapore is doing, but has another layer of um, privacy protection in it where individuals download the app. It, um, it every day generates a new ID for the person and it communicates to other people with the app if they've been near each other like it sort of does a mutual sort of handshake behind the scenes and then if in the future you test positive the app can ping those people and tell them that they came in contact with someone who's now tested positive and then they have that information and can go do something with it but it never says who the person was right it like it, it doesn't reveal any pii in the process of of that communication and you can't even sort of backwards look it up yeah so this it 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 sharpens our conversation for me to focus on anonymity like what's the status of anonymity in a pandemic Mm -hmm. because privacy is is obviously it, it pushes and pulls and it evolves surveillance is growing we know that because surveillance is growing do we have to assume that anonymity is weakening or can we preserve anonymity while we're also wanting to expose our whereabouts through contact tracing? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, this is where, you know, good cryptographers and, and sensible user design and, and the underlying architecture of the system come, you know, are really important. And, and it's exciting to see, um, you know, all the sort of practical activity going on in terms of building real things that could 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 be a real help to um, support the kind of sharing that we will need in between now and when we have um, widespread sort of um, vaccination. Yeah. So at least for, you know, the next six to 12 months, um, pro, you know, who, who will lead the charge? What companies, what what thought leaders do you think we can look to to 
help us figure out um, how to decouple our, you know, our contact tracing dynamics in terms of opting into that um, from the rest of the privacy stack. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think my data folks are doing a good job. The user-centric digital identity folks are having a big meeting tomorrow to talk about the other side of this, which is like proving that you've already had the the virus and you're okay to um, move around more than other folks. Um, Unfortunately, my mind just jumps to Facebook. It feels like, well, isn't Facebook going to be the clearinghouse and arbiter of who has it and who doesn't and who's been where? Or is that Google? I, you know, I'm not really a Facebook user. Seth, I'm not, I'm not saying you there. are, and I'm not saying I am or am not. I use Instagram. I try yes. to use Facebook as little as possible, and I definitely use Google. I'm yeah. trying to turn off my histories. But my point is, if we're, yeah. the, 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 the medium-term future that you're suggesting, which I agree with, which is we're going to have to opt in in mass to sharing um details that in the past we thought were way too intimate to share so it's not about right. naked pictures it's about our physical whereabouts and who we've been in contact with right so that doing that in a world we, where we don't have top-down government controls the way that china might control its internet platforms yeah and that's not going to happen at the federal or state level here in the States. It's, it's only mm -hmm. going to come from the big technology providers that have that kind of scale and, and monopoly. Maybe. I mean, I also yeah, think it could be like iMessage. Learning... It could be Facebook slash Instagram. It could be, you know, Google. But I, I don't think it's going to happen on an existing app. I mean, I maybe it will, but I'm I'm more optimistic about these um, the potential for some of these, like an app specifically designed to do trans contact tracing based on what they're already doing effectively in Singapore with an added layer of privacy, and people will be like, cool, and that you know. The WeTrace project's all open source, so security researchers could go in and, like, evaluate it, right? So that could potentially get a ton of momentum if you had, just like we had major industries like the NBA and and colleges take action before the government right. did, right? That there are some large voices in the society that could say, hey, this is a good app. We all should be using it. Everyone will be safer. We trust it. Please use it. That it could have a lot of potential because I don't think people trust Facebook, Google, or, you know, Zoom right now. <laughs> Not that they're following us around, but like it's, we need, we need things where you can see the code and we need especially for this type of thing, not believe for real that there isn't some other actor collecting data for some other reason underneath the hood. So I agree. We, we, we need, we need trust, um, but we also need scale. And so yes. that's going to be, what will be interesting to see is clearly, uh, and I'll just start with Facebook. They're going to have a significant role in education and a new kind of social alignment 
around these policies and procedures in the coming months. And it'll be interesting to see, I mean, they failed as it related to Libra in terms of gaining kind of critical mass of, of trust as an ecosystem, or at least they failed so far. Yes. It'll be interesting to see if they succeed here. I almost feel like they will because they have to, because we, we don't have other public, social, internet infrastructures at that scale that can help us. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in different markets with different Facebook levels of penetration. So um, some countries, the internet is Facebook, right? So literally everybody's on it. Um, is Is Facebook collecting location data all the time they're collecting all the data they be. can so yeah so uh, we should probably wrap this up so just a one one thought i think for both of us it would be great for next week to try to dig deeper into contact tracing and try to get somebody yes who was directly or, or even indirectly involved with some of the successful examples like in south korea to join us yeah let's do that that sounds like a really okay. great idea well, good. Thank you, Kalia. This is Thanks, PSA Today, our inaugural Maiden Charter um, episode, number one, April 1st. Yep. And this is, this is not a joke. This is real. It's real. It's real. Okay, have a good week. You too.